Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a long golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, the those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, and the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we long to peer into your glory. And as we have these brief moments here together, and spending time looking at what you said in your word, would you give us a glimpse this morning, we ask, of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Greg Gilbert, in his little black book, and at times it's been out in the bookshelf and other times we're out of copies, but it's a little black book called uh, What is the Gospel? And in one of the chapters, he opens up in that book with this. It's a, it's a humorous illustration to draw out how we view the Lord. But he says in the beginning of this chapter, he says, let me introduce you to God. And the way he spells God is a lowercase g. Let me introduce you to God. You might want to lower your voice a little bit before we go in. He, he might be sleeping now. He's old, you know. And he doesn't much understand or like this newfangled modern world. His golden days... The ones he talks about, when you really get them going, were long time ago before most of us were even born. A lot of people still like him, it seems, or at least he manages to keep up his poll numbers pretty high, and you'd be surprised at how many people even drop by to visit or ask things every once in a while. But of course, that's all right with him. He's here to help. Thank goodness all the crankiness you read about, sometimes in his old books, you know, like having the earth swallow people up or raining fire down on cities, that sort of thing all seems to have faded now in his old age. Now, he's just a good-natured, low-maintenance friend who's really easy to talk to, especially since he almost never talks back. And it's usually when he does, it's to show me by some weird sign that what I want to do, regardless, is all right by him. And that's really the best kind of friend, isn't it? You know the best thing about him, though? He doesn't judge me, ever, for anything. Oh, sure, I know deep down he wishes I'd be better, 
more loving, less selfish and all that. But he's realistic. He knows I'm human and nobody's perfect. And I'm totally sure he's fine with that. Besides, forgiving people is his job. It's what he does. After all, he's love, right? And I like to think of love as never judging, only forgiving. That's the God I know. And I wouldn't have him any other way. All right, hold on a second. I think we can go in now. Don't worry. We won't have to stay long. Really, he's grateful for any time he can get. Is that how you view God? This lowercase g. Let me also ask you while I'm at it. Whatever your view of God is, is your view of God powerful enough to deal with your real problems? This morning, we see an image that would never let us walk away from Revelation chapter 1. You cannot walk away with a sleepy, old, lowercase g God that we just read about. No, friends. This book of Revelation, it is here to shock you back into worshiping the true God, the real God, the creator, not one of the created things, to turn us back from finding cheap comfort and and hope in the world. It turns us back to worshiping him. It does so by uniquely telling us an overarching story. What's the story, you ask? What's the story about? This story, my friends, is what many, many great stories are about. It's simply this. If I could just put it in one short snippet. Slay the dragon, get the girl. Slay the dragon, get the girl. Isn't that what some of the best stories are really about? I mean, think of it. Lord of the Rings, for example. What is Lord of the Rings ultimately about at the end of the day? Is it not slay the dragon, get the girl? What about other stories that we think of? Three Enchanted Princes, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, The Dragon's Lair. I would argue that really at the end of the day, even Mario, the, the, the uh, Nintendo game, at the end of the day, what is Mario about? Slay the dragon, get the girl. And, and, and as you think about it, so many of the um, uh, other stories that we have in our culture may, may have this kind of similar damsel in distress types of, of plot lines. Anything from King Kong to Sleeping, ba- Sleeping Beauty. I would say perhaps even Star Wars at the end of the day has this slay the dragon, get the girl. You might say it's really the main theme of this book. And this is not the only thing that the book of Revelation is really about. I hope you would understand as we're entering in and seeing that plot line running throughout the book, that it also brings in and sweeps in all the other main themes from the rest of scripture. For example, if you go through Genesis all the way up to Revelation, but prior to it, and you look and you'll say, ah, there's good, there's evil. Well, so here in Revelation, you you go through the Bible and you say, well, there's a hope and a future. Oh, here. In Revelation, grace, forgiveness, here. Salvation, gospel, here. Think about these other themes that are running through all of Scripture. A temple, garden, presence of God, rest, priesthood, judgment, the tree and river of life, weddings, feasting, harlotry, Babylon, thrones, and a king, all through the rest of Scripture. Ah, and here, in Revelation. Rightly understood, I would argue if you really understand this book, if this book was all that you had was the book of Revelation, you would have the guts of the rest of scripture. Uh, that You would in essence have the entire Bible. And you would see, at the end of the day, we need a knight who will fiercely come 
and slay the dragon and get the girl. And I will unfold this as we begin to see here, first, the stage being set, second, the Son of Man among the churches, and third, we'll take a look at the Son of Man revealed. First, let me set the stage here with a couple troubling verses. Um, First, by looking at the uh, Time Traveler's Handbook, uh, which is a humorous book of 1,001 tense formations. And in this book, it talks about how describing time and the things and events that happen can be confusing. For example, it says, how do you describe something that was about to happen to you in the past before you avoided it by time jumping forward two days to avoid it? The event would be described differently according to whether or not you're talking about it from the standpoint of your own natural time or for a time further in the future or time further in the past. And further, it's complicated by conducting conversations while you actually are traveling from one time to another. We feel the pain. <laughs> and really, at least for a few moments here, we, we try to fight to keep this idea of time straight. First, looking at verse 9. Where John says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and testimony of Jesus. So note here that John, as he pens this, he's not on Patmos. He was on Patmos. This is a pit where criminals go. This is an ancient Alcatraz. It's where you would put somebody that you didn't want going anywhere else, no means to escape. It's noted here that he is not there on this Patmos. He's not there in this prison because he stole something. He's not there because he murdered someone. We see he's there on account of the word. He is there because he's sticking with Jesus and sticking with his word. That, my friends, is what criminalizes him and makes him worthy of the pit, worthy to be brought to jail. And as he writes, he says that he is their fellow partner in three things. Note this, the tribulation, because as I brought up last week, the tribulation has been kicked off. John says he is in the middle of this tribulation that carries through. And he says also he's a fellow partner in the kingdom and in patient endurance. And at this point, I just want you to picture John there. He's on this island. He's on this Alcatraz. He's sitting there and he's wondering what is going on. You you could imagine he's sitting there. Probably he's, he's exiled for sure. He's aged at this point. He's facing this tribulation. And if I were him, I'd be saying, what is the plan of God? All the other apostles at this point have likely been martyred. And so he's sitting there saying, here I am. And he's wondering, is Christianity some sort of flash in the pan? At this point, friends, it has been almost 60 years since John has spent time with Jesus. You could picture him. He's there in this pit and he's probably thinking to himself, did I just sort of imagine those three years? Did I just sort of make that up that I saw Christ on the cross and then resurrected? Was that all just a pipe dream? What is going on here at this point that now I'm sitting here? And as he's sitting, waiting in prison, there was a special Sunday. I know for many of you, you've had things spiritually happen to you on a Sunday at church. And for John, here he is on the Lord's Day, which is 
the, the is Sunday. He says, I was in spirit on the Lord's day. It's the first day of the week. This is why we gather on Sunday because it is the Lord's day. It's the day we celebrate the resurrection. And here we're not really told what he means by in the spirit exactly. Nowhere do we see him explain and say, hey, just so you know, this means my, I, my soul literally departed from my body. Nor does he say I had some sort of strange dream. It seems to be something maybe akin to what Peter had in Acts chapter 10, where Peter seems to be in this trance. Uh, it's this weird state where he recognizes things are not normal here. And he is having this intense vision before him. And it was on this day he's asked to write down what he was seeing in this vision. Now, further down in verse 19, uh, we, we see exactly what it is that he is supposed to write down. Verse 19 says, Write, therefore, the things that you have seen and those that, uh, those that are and that those that are to take place after this. Now, I would like to avoid getting completely into the weeds. If you would like to discuss this, happy to talk about this at length. Um, there are at least, to my understanding, six ways, and then I began to parse out a few different ways that would add to that number on how you would understand verse 19. I think if you boil most of them down, you come to kind of two main, two main uh, ways to interpret, uh, primary ways to interpret this verse 19. First would be uh, as a concordance. In other words, this verse is helping us see how the entire book unfolds so that what John is asked to write down is to write down the things of, of the uh, past, what has happened in the past, and then John is to write down some things that are currently going on in this vision that pertain to his own day, and then future, that he's to write down the things that pertain to the future. And so the, the concordance way of reading this verse uh, would be my preference. I would like this to be the case that 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 chapter one pertains only to the past, and that chapters two and three pertain to the current time frame, while chapters four and on only pertain to the future. Um, that would be my preference on how to read this. But I, I take the second way, the second primary way of understanding verse nineteen, because it doesn't work so smoothly if you force it into those concordance types of categories. Uh, for example, in chapter 12, chapter 12 is not future. Chapter 12 rewinds all the way to the cross. It's a view of Jesus where he is about to be born. And it says there, this dragon, the dragon that the, the knight is to slay, is sitting at the woman who's about to give birth. And as she's about to give birth, the dragon's waiting there to devour the baby. Who's the baby? It's very clearly, it's Christ there. And so it becomes obvious that this book doesn't work in a nice, neat timeline fashion. As you read through, there are times where things are rewound and it's hard to put your finger down on, the, on a tight timeline and say for sure. And so for that reason, even chapters four and five, as I read them, it's hard to say that that is future. There must be an aspect in which all the hosts of heaven, all the martyrs are worshiping him as we speak up in heaven. So... I don't think it works well. And so for this reason, I, I tend to view this verse 19, and you can feel free to, to disagree, uh, that the way that this verse unfolds is John's asking, hey, I want you to write down the things, what does it say, verse 19? I want you to write down the things that you have seen. What's that? Ah, simply write the, the, those that are and the, those that are to take place after this. In other words, 
Write down stuff that you've already seen and write down the stuff that you're going to see. Well, what did John write down? What is it exactly that he wrote, that he saw? Well, let's consider the second point. The son of man among the churches. This is where we'll pick up at verse 10 here. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and Thyatira and to Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, John says, while he's in this spiritual vision, he hears something like a voice, like a trumpet. And it's important that we get this word like into our understanding here. Like shows up here in this book a tremendous amount of times. 63 times in the book of Revelation, we see the word like. Um, Much like I would say, hey, I saw that man. He was crying like a baby. Uh, That doesn't mean that the sound of the man crying was actually the sound of a baby crying. It just means that he was really, really crying. I'm emphasizing the fact that he was really, really crying. So he was crying like a baby. We probably should keep that type of understanding of like in mind as we think like a trumpet or, you know, like the voice of many waters as we we understand it's not to be understood in a hyper literal way, but to help us understand the intensity of something or the angle on something. And so John is to write down, which he did later, he's to send it in circulation to the seven churches. Some have speculated that these churches are are perhaps figurative of, of church ages which is uh, possible, uh, so that the, the order of the churches somewhat represents a timeline of human history, um, so that the, the first uh, church that is mentioned in chapter 2, which is Ephesus, uh, refers to the earliest church, uh, to the church in the first century. And that by the time you work to Laodicea, it's often uh, times considered about year 1900 going forward, uh, would be representative of the church of Laodicea, which we will conclude with at the very end of chapter 3. Uh, while this may be possible, um, the, the Laodicean church uh, was accused of being a church that was uh, rather well-to-do and who lived in great wealth while others lived in poverty. And this would be difficult, I think, to really truly hold at this point in time. The vast majority of our Christian brothers and sisters are not living in wealth no, the vast majority of our Christian brothers and sisters in, in China and India and, and, and various remote places in Africa, they are living in great poverty right now. And so it would be hard, I think, to, to hold that sort of a, a view. I'd rather suggest a more simplistic geographic explanation of these seven churches to say that they were literally and um, uh, seven churches that dwelled in these seven different cities. And the order that you find these um, cities listed in, was simply the mail route, uh, so that you would begin on the coast there at Ephesus and work your way, uh, because of the topography and the geography, you'd work your way just over to uh, Laodicea would be the last city you stop off at. Now, we have several mail folks here who've either worked with the post office or are currently working at the post office right now. And you know, in order to deliver, you need to be efficient. Uh, you couldn't just come up to, you know, Lolo and deliver there and then drive all the way down to Brightwood and deliver there. No, you need to have different post offices in different sections and you work road by road by road so that you're most efficient. And I would suggest that's simply what is going on here, that John is commissioned to send this letter 
on the simple male root beginning at Ephesus and ending in Laodicea. And as John turns and is told to write these uh, write this uh, down, what, what his vision is here, he, we begin with seven golden lampstands. And verse 13 tells us it is Christ standing amongst these lampstands. In verse 16, we'll see that there's also seven stars in his right hand. Now, these lampstands were first pictured before in, in Exodus. We find golden lampstands in Exodus, and it's the provisions that are mentioned amongst the uh, items that are to be there at the tabernacle. And we have to kind of scratch our heads and say, well, what is this showing us? The people of God, I would say, have always been connected in some way to the light. First, we think of God as light and him is no darkness. But also we think the church is to be a light, a lamp set on a hill that is to be shining. Are we not? And why are we a light? Well, we're not a light in our own strength. We're a light because we're connected to the light. And so this idea of these golden lampstands, as we read later through the decoder ring that we find in verse 20, we see that these golden lampstands are the church themselves. Uh, and so we are the light in and as much we are connected to the light. And we find then the seven stars are also, we're told in verse 20, that they represent uh, the uh, seven angels of the seven churches. Um, some speculate, hey, the, this idea of the angels over a church, so maybe there's an, an actual angel assigned to each local church. That's possible. Um, others speculate, hey, you know, there, there's a, a, a broader meaning of the word angel, angel meaning messenger. Uh, perhaps there's someone who's supposed to be the messenger to the church, or maybe even the pastors are considered to be the messengers to the church body. Uh, there's a very, various ways I think you could take this that all seem to be faithful to this idea of these seven angels. Either way, I think it's important we see there is a, a whether it's a literal angel or pastors, a messenger to the churches. And backing out a bit, what we're seeing here is pictured as Christ is the one who dwells with his church, even as they exist as local churches. In other words, do you want Christ? Well, you need to be in the church. This is where Christ, Christ dwells with his people. Yes, we're flawed. No, we're not professional. Clearly, we're not professional when the power goes out and we're out in the field 45 minutes before the church service starts and we are scrambling. But here, friends, whether we're out in the field with no power at all or whether we're in here with all the bells and whistles, here's where Christ is walking in and amongst his church. He is here with us. And we see here Christ, as he's walking with these seven churches, this number uh, is important. The, the number seven, I've always tended to view the number seven in connection with perfection. Have you heard of that? Seven, yet yeah, this idea of perfection. And as I was reflecting more and reading more even this last week, the, the number seven really has to do not just with perfection, um, but also uh, probably more tied to this idea of completion. Uh, so it is the completeness so we think of the complete week is the seven days. Um, and, and, and I think perhaps in that sense, we might understand and see it just a, a deeper level than the seven local churches, but a deeper perhaps meaning that this is to, in, to encompass the wholeness, the completeness of the church, even as they're expressed in local churches, that this idea of seven means that these seven letters or this letter to the seven can land on every church of all generations that we can all glean regardless of where we're at with our strengths and our weaknesses. 
Either we'll be greatly encouraged or we'll be rebuked and corrected, but it will do a work of lifting all the totality of the church up. Well, truly, this is a book that shows us more than telling us. But what we see next tells us not only the Son of Man is amongst the churches, but he is a raging knight. Here it is that he is here to slay the dragon and get the girl. Look at the Son of Man unveiled in verses 13 through 18. I'll reread these to, to bring them to mind to you. In the midst of the lampstands, one, like a Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in the furnace, and his voice like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. For I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. And we'll pause there. See first here that he is clothed in a long robe with a golden sash. Now friends, when you're poor, typically back in the day when you're poor, your robe, because it costs more to have more material, your robe may only go to your, to your knees. If, you, if your robe went all the way to your ankles or to the floor, that meant you were well-to-do. You had the money for all the clothes. So your, the wealth go, is expressed in your clothes. And then further, we see that he has this golden sash. Now, a sash reminds us of the priesthood back in Exodus. They were the ones to wear a sash. But back in Exodus, it was one that was made of cloth. It was a, a, a linen there. Here, this is not an ordinary sash. This is a golden sash. Um, and we, we see further, his hair is white. Uh, and, and to get this idea of how white his hair is, uh, it goes to what was known to be the most white thing in all of the ancient world, which is the fresh snow. When fresh snow falls back in the ancient world, you really don't get a whiter white than that white. And what is this signifying? It's signifying his wisdom. It's signifying his great age. That he is, as Daniel says, the ancient of days. And so as I opened up with, while he is eternal, we do not take this to mean that he is old. Like we think of old. But he is the eternal God. Do you see the difference? He is, he is wise. He is eternal. But he's not old in the sense that he's tired out. Or that he is not his former strength. No, 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 no. The whiteness of his hair means he is all wise. And then we find his eyes are like a flame of fire. Now, usually when you're older, when you're ancient of days old, your eyes grow weaker, don't they? Uh, here with this king, his eyes are not opaque with age. His eyes are described as a, as a flame of fire, which reminds us that he sees. He sees everything. He sees all. Several times, we'll find in chapters 2 and 3 as he's addressing the seven churches, the repeated phrase is, I know. He'll say to the seven churches, I know your works. I know your deeds. I know what you've done. I know what you're under. I know the tribulation that you're facing. Why does he know? Because he sees. 
His eyes mean, are, are like a flame of fire. He's able to pierce in and find and see. He knows where we're all at. He knows individually. He knows collectively. He's able to see and to peer in because he has sharp, youthful vision. And we find his feet are like the feet of bronze. Now, this implies solid feet. Think steel toe boots. Um, this, 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 this warrior, he's able to crush all the enemies before him. That's what you find in chapter 14. He's brutally able to smash down any of his enemies. But he's able in his judgment to crush all before him. And as he as his vision with these feet of bronze, we also see he has the voice like many waters. Um, those of you know, when we go down to, to the waters down here, the sandy for a baptism, I'm having to shout. I'm having to yell so that all of you can hear because the water is so loud down there. You know that when you go over to Multnomah Falls, it's even worse, or even worse would be Niagara Falls. The water is so loud, it's, you can't escape it. And I think that's the idea here. The voice of this warrior, the voice of this knight, is not something that you can just plug your ears or put in some, put, put in some earplugs and ignore. You cannot ignore him. He is not ignorable. You must hear what he has to say. And what he says is imaged by this mouth of a two-edged sword. Now, Isaiah 49.2 uh, speaks of this as well, how he made my mouth like a sharp sword. In, in the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And so we get there. The, the What he has to speak is cutting. It, it, it speaks and it shocks us and it cuts us and it wakes us up from our sleepy slumber. We find also... This warrior, this night, his face is like the sun. The other day, while the sun was at high noon, it was up high, summertime here, I looked up at the sun. For 0.26 seconds, I looked at the sun. And that was it. That's all I needed. And I was reminded, it's bright. You can't just stare at this thing. In fact, it's said that if you stare at the sun for 10 straight seconds, Irreversible damage begins to happen to your eye. If you stare at the sun for 60 seconds, you begin to go permanently blind. Uh, There once was a man who was uh, not a believer, and he was having a conversation with this Christian. And the non-believer, he turns to the Christian, he says, look, I'd like to believe in your God. Just show me, just show me your God. Show me this God of yours that you say you believe in. And the Christian said, I will be happy to, to show you my God, I just want you to, to gaze and look at one of the things that he's created. And if you can gaze and look upon something that he's created for me, then I will show you the glory and magnificence of my God. And the, the man said, done, just tell me what to look at. He says, look, I want you to gaze at the sun. And if you can gaze and you can look into the sun, look, look, look. And once you've gazed upon this glory, then I will show you the glory of my God. And the point is, we can't handle the glory of God. He's too powerful. This warrior is incredible. He is the creator of all things. And in his own strength, his glory is so raging and overwhelming that John, when John looks at this glory, this is interesting, he doesn't go blind. What happens? Worse, he goes dead. He falls down as though dead. 
Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Similar responses happen when people view into the glory of God. We see this in Joshua chapter 5, Ezekiel chapter 1, Daniel chapter 8 and 10, Matthew chapter 17, Acts 26. This warrior knight shakes you to the core as you fall down as though dead. Friends, I don't know if you've heard of other people who've said, I've had, I've, I've had a vision of God. I, I saw him face to face. I was standing there right with him. Maybe they have. I don't know for sure. But when something that gives me pause for thought is that everybody in scripture, as they conversate with the living God, it's not as if he's a sleepy old grandpa. Very rarely do you hear, I've seen God and he's not to be trifled with. I've seen God and his glory overwhelmed me. I thought I was dying. <laughs> now, if somebody comes to you and says that, I might be more tempted to believe their, the, the, the truth of their, of their story. But here, John falls down as though dead. And you have to remember, if there was anybody, anybody who should have sauntered right into heaven and been able to have a conversation with the living God, it should have been John, the apostle. Why is that? Because John, of the, of the hundred or so uh, disciples that followed Jesus, John was right there in the midst. He, had already, he already knew Jesus. Well, and of, of the special group of the 12 apostles, John was one of them. He was with Jesus intimately for three years. Well, then you take one step further. John, there was an inner click of three. There was Peter, James, and John. And then... If you get to the cross, who's the one who's there? Who's the one who Jesus from the cross says, Mother, behold your son, and son, behold your mother? It was John, the apostle, arguably the closest human with Jesus on the face of earth. And his very best friend comes to a vision of him in heaven and falls down as though dead. This is where we have a turn. Look at verse 17, uh, the second half here. But he laid his hand, his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last. And the living one, I died and behold, I am alive evermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. This knight who's come to slay the dragon was killed in battle. He says it. He says it. I died. Our knight, our Messiah, our God died and out of the ashes defeated death. The same night who died and rose is now fiercer than ever. He is amongst the church that John has, uh, and it has John falling down as though dead. It's the same one who touches John and says, do not fear. So we have this amazingly powerful God who says, do not fear. And then Christ sheds light on an angle of the gospel we sometimes overlook. He, he holds the keys. He says, I hold the keys. Now, when I was in high school, there was a security guard. He would march up and down the halls. And this guy was built like a tank. Uh, he could have crushed me with his pinky if he wanted to. And as he would walk up and down the hallway, he, he would have this string wrapped around his neck. And then he would have a big wad of keys on both sides of the string. And as he walked down, you would hear chink, 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 chink. Now, I think he was doing this because the weight of the keys and his gym shorts that he would have would have pulled them down. But I think there was also another reason. As he marched along the hallway, it was to remind him, I've got the power. 
I've got the keys. You don't have the keys. You're a student. I got the power. I have the keys. I can unlock doors. I can lock you in a door. I've got the power. It was, it was a stark reminder. I think in that sense here, Christ is holding the keys. We get the picture. He's the gatekeeper. Gatekeeper, not just of a classroom nor a gymnasium. Friends, he's the gatekeeper to heaven and hell. To, as it says here, death and Hades. So we get this picture. Christ is the knight, the powerful warrior whom can dash his enemies into pieces. I know this has been a lot. And I know this is a longer section here, but I want us to get the full picture that this God, this one is staggering. I ask you this morning, who is your God? What is your God? Will your God be able to handle your worst nightmares? Will your God be for, there for you in the midst of it all? Will your God be able to provide you lasting comfort that will never fade? Will your God provide you with all the worth that you need and all the acceptance that outshines the world telling you that you're insignificant? Will your God actually bring you forever joy that won't end when you're dead, but actually when we die, that's where it really fully begins? If not, friend, I invite you. I invite you to gaze upon this Christ upon his glory. I want you to see this night in his full glory. His hair is white. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He is the Ancient of Days. The dragon will never outlast him. He is ruling as our highest king in the highest heavens. His robe goes all the way to his feet. The dragon will never rule over him. The dragon is poor compared to him. He sees everything. His eyes are like a flame of fire. The dragon will never be able to deceive him or escape him or hide from him. His feet are like bronze. He will not be knocked down by anything. The dragon cannot stomp him out. In fact, as Genesis 3.15 promises us, that this knight is the one who will crush the head of the serpent. And he is the one to slay the dragon. His voice is like many waters. People will never be able to shout him down. No matter what the media, no matter the social media, no matter what they do, they won't be able to shout down this God. His mouth has a sharp two-edged sword coming out from it, which means he brings judgment. The, the dragon cannot stand in judgment over him. This knight, this warrior, topples on top of him. And his glory is like the sun itself. The dragon will never outshine him. Friends, I need to remember this this week. You need to remember that this week, when the power goes out, When chaos happens, when the bills pour in, when work gets crazy, when our children or our teenagers frustrate us, when we are disappointed with ourselves, when we are desiring appreciation from others, when we feel defeated, our God is not inadequate. We need a Jesus like this. Is this your Jesus? I just leave you with a simple question. Is this king that I'm preaching this morning your king. I pray so. And if not, I would love to speak with you this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you and who are we to say anything to you? Uh, We are those that when we peer into your glory ought to Do as John did. We should fall down as though dead. And yet we're so grateful that those words that you spoke to John 
are the words that, that should fall on our hearts. Lord, we have a, a respect, a fearful respect of you. And yet, because of the gospel, our greatest fear is not there. We are told, do not fear. That you hold the keys to life for us. That you have purchased us by your blood. And we pray that uh, we will remember that this week, that we will rejoice in that for all of our lives until we someday see you face to face as John has. And so we, we bring you praise this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.